will Graceview close out the year preaching uh, on the last Sunday of the year? Well, as you can see by your handout, a very unusual topic. Um, as, as we're turning Matthew 6, so we've been going through this verse by verse. I, uh, in my heart, uh, though we've been a long time in Matthew 5 and quite a long time in Matthew 6, I think, can't guarantee, but I think following today we're going to start moving more quickly and having larger sections of verses that we're going to cover today, mainly focusing on three verses uh, in Matthew 6. Uh, but as we get ready to look at this passage, I hope your mind's ready, I hope your heart's ready. Uh, this actually is evidence of the value of expositional preaching. Uh, I got called to preach when I was 12 years old, and really all those early years I rarely preached. It would be a couple times a year, and that was definitely in my teens and maybe a little more than that through my 20s and even a little more in the 30s and more in the 40s. But, uh, of course, I've been here for three and a half years now. Uh, but I've made it to age 49, and I've never preached on today's topic and probably never would have chosen to if I had not seen it, uh, if it had not come up expositionally in our text. And so here we see the value. So here's a little confession. In this county this morning, there's going to be probably more goosebump-oriented sermons and maybe more inspiring style of sermons than we're going to have here today. But this is what we need to hear. This is the message God has for us uh, here at Graceview this, for this morning. Um, and probably something many here today and even watching online have never thought about. <clears throat> so what I want to do is we've been going through Matthew 6. We've made our way down to verse 15. Our text is 16 to 18, but I need to go back to verse 1 because this is really tying back. Each has its own section. I'm not going to tie it back to chapter 5, though we could. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to see the context, how it applies to 16 to 18. Look at Matthew 6, 1. Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Hear it fresh. Beware. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Why is this so important? Because Christ says, if you do that, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So don't be guilty of chapter 6, verse 1a, or you're going to lose chapter 6, verse 1b. So that verse 1 is a very broad, general statement, a broad category. So verse 2 starts with the word, thus. So here's the fallout from it, and Christ is going to get specific in three areas. Thus, when you give, you know, when you give, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. You say, nobody would do that. Sound no trumpet before you. Don't announce it as the hypocrites do in two settings. They do it in the synagogues at religious meetings. And they do it out in the streets where the needs are. Why would anyone do this? That they may be praised by others. Christ says truly, so when he says truly, everything he says is true. He's drawing a special attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They've been paid in full when they got noticed by others. Don't do it that way. But, verse 3, when you give, hey, listen. When you give, you know when you give, to the needy, 
Do not, here's a technique, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be so discreet in how you give. Literally the idea, if you didn't have the same brain shared by your left hand and your right hand, your left hand wouldn't even know. You give so discreetly. Well, why is that important? Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. And here's a promise. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, there's one category. Here's the second, verse 5. And when you pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. What are the hypocrites? How do they pray? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and, in, and at the street corners. There is no sin in chapter 6, verse 5a. It is not sinful to stand and pray. It's not sinful to stand and pray in religious gatherings. And it's not sinful to stand and pray at a street corner. Here's the problem. They do this, hypocrites do this, that they may be seen by others. Again, same summation, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've been paid in full. They'll not get anything else other than being seen. They got what they wanted. Verse 6, so to protect against that, when you pray, you know when you pray? When you pray, go into your room. Shut the door. Right, I need to be private with God. I've got to be able to concentrate. Absolutely, that's one of the main reasons that you shut the door. But Christ is giving another reason. Shut the door and pray. So don't just go in there and get alone and, and, and shut the door, but actually pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you give, do it privately. When you pray, do it privately. Verse 16. Now you're going to see, notice the first word, and. So he's continuing the same theme. All that, those weeks we preached on the Lord's model prayer, now we're kind of got through that and we're picking up the same theme, a third category that all flows out of verse 1. And when you fast. When you fast, so when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, do not look gloomy. He said, who would do that? Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. This disfiguring is actually apparently a hard word for the translators. It literally could mean to hide and cover. It could mean to cover up. It could mean they go down to the market and they literally pull their, their hoods up over their head. And so everyone would know, oh, that's right, they're fasting. Could do it that way. Or it could mean actually contorting or even painting and just taking a gloomy look. Verse 16 again. Hear what the Bible says to us. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. That's what they want. Here's what Christ says again. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Don't do that. But when you fast, do this. Anoint your head. Wash your face. Why would you do that? That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And then Christ stamps it and says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at verse 1 again. I need to repeat a few things I said a few months ago. Verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Catch what Christ, Grace, if you got to listen here, here's what Jesus is saying. Look out, beware, watch out, take heed, listen, be careful. Why? What's, the, what's this beware about? There are unseen dangers that are always lurking 
when we do acts of righteousness. There are unseen dangers. You don't think it's there. You guys know how that God is so powerful and so mighty and so glorious and so wise that he can snatch good right out of evil. Have you ever noticed that? God, our evil, God can snatch good out of it. Well, here's the flip of that. Our nature is such, we are bent in such a way, we can literally snatch evil right out of good. So here's a good thing. These are good things, giving, praying, fast, good things. We'll pull evil out of that somehow. And Christ is saying, you better watch out. The verse 1 again, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Then you will have no reward. Christ is not saying, so I want to be careful here. Christ is not saying if someone discovers that you gave, there, it's gone, you lost it. He's not saying if someone finds out and they, oop, they see you praying, you blew it. I'm not hearing any more of your prayer. I'm not rewarding it. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying if someone finds out that you're fasting, reward is gone. It's all off. All bets are off. You're, you lost the whole thing. He's not saying if they discover it. What he's saying is in your heart, do you desire pe- Check your heart. When you give, do you desire people to know the details of, of what you gave? Do you want people to know how much you pray and how often and pray and how deeply you pray? Do you want them to know that you're fasting and how deeply and how long and to what degree you're fasting? Christ says if that's in your heart and it comes out and you let them find out that you're doing it, you have lost your reward and that is a huge loss. So to protect against that, what Christ is saying is certain disciplines in our life need to be kept private to ensure that we're not doing them for public glory. So this morning I want to look at three, I'm sorry, two main thoughts. Two main thoughts. I have such a habit of doing three. Today I want to do two, but each one has some subcategories under them. Two thoughts as we preach on fasting. Number one. What is the purpose of fasting? You don't need to start there. What's the whole purpose? And really, as we're writing that, as our minds are thinking, what is the purpose of fasting? I need to, let's let's start even before that, but under that. What is fasting? So I realize that today, so I want to be kind of careful here. There are some good modern applications, some good modern variations that are being applied to fasting that I think are fine. In fact, I think some are even good. In a moment when we hit six bullet points, what I'm going to propose to you in the sixth one is that we can make some of these modern applications. But what I want to be clear about is when it comes to Bible fasting, Bible fasting is very simply talking about abstaining from food. So we can make other applications, but in its essence, fasting in the biblical sense is when a human being abstains from food, for a spiritual purpose, for a spiritual reason. It has to do with food. It has to do with abstaining from food in such a way that you feel the hunger, and that's the purpose of this fasting. Now, some things that maybe we didn't know. Let's talk about this for a moment. The Bible very clearly commands God's people to be givers. I only have to, I literally, my Bible's open, I see part of chapter 5 and I see part of chapter 6. I don't have to flip a page, but that I can see a command in Scripture to give, chapter 5, verse 42. I can see all through the Scripture, in fact, I don't have to turn my page, I can see a command in Scripture, God's people are to pray. It's chapter 6, verse number 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. That is a command from Christ to pray. You say, okay, so where are the commands in the Scripture for fasting? Interestingly enough, if you want to flip there... I want you to see the Old Testament command to fast is given to the Jews in Leviticus. It'll be on the screen. Leviticus chapter 23, 
and look at verse 22, 27. This actually comes up in a couple of places in Scripture. Here's one. The Bible says in Leviticus 23, 27, just before that, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month, so they're laying out their religious calendar, on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you, Jews, a time of holy convocation. Holy, convo uh, holy convocation is an assembly, a holy gathering. It shall be for you a holy gathering, and you shall afflict yourselves. Everyone knows what that is talking about is literally you will afflict yourselves in fasting and abstaining from food. And he says, and you'll present a food offering to the Lord. So everybody listen very carefully. What does the Bible say about fasting? As far as the Jews in the Old Testament, they are commanded to fast literally only one day a year on the high day of atonement that's it they will call for fasts in specific time periods in specific situations human beings will call for fasts. on God's end there's like one day every year that it's repeated it's on the high day of atonement we don't have the high day of atonement anymore where we offer a, a, an animal sacrifice where the high priest goes in the holy of holies once a year we don't do that anymore our, our high priest has already died on the cross once and for all time. So we don't have a single high day of atonement. We don't do this anymore. You say, okay, great, that's the Old Testament. So there's examples of fasting, but only this one command given to the Jews one day a year. What about the New Testament? Guys, that's just it. Listen. The New Testament never commands Christians to fast. I found that odd. It's actually a little bit surprising to me, and that answered some questions that I had in my mind when I started studying that this week. Like, we are never commanded, and some of you right now are, are questioning that. You think, I, 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 I no, Jeff, right here, right here in the text. Look, it says, and when you fast, that's not a command. That's a description. So hang with me. The Jews are commanded to fast one day a, a year. Christians are never commanded to fast in the New Testament. And so you say, well, then we don't need to do it. Oh, hang on, here's how I want to balance it. If you took the time to read all of verses 2 through 17, here's what you would find. That's why I emphasized it when I read. I want you to hear it again. In chapter 6, verse 2, Christ said, listen, when you give. And then in verse number 3, but when you give. You say, okay, yes, giving is commanded and Christ is assuming we will give. Verse 5, and when you pray. Verse 6 literally has the same phrase, but when you pray. Again, verse 7, and when you pray. When you give, when you give, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. Now we come down to verse 16. And when you fast. Look at verse 17, but when you fast. So, Jeff, what's the point you're making? I want to propose to you there is no biblical command for Christians to fast, but there seems to be an assumption on the Lord's part. You do give, right? You're commanded to give. You do pray, right? You're commanded to pray, Christians. You do fast, right? It's as though Christ is saying there's no command, but there is an assumption on the part of Christ that his people will give, his people will pray, his people will fast. Flip, flip over just a few pages, chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. It's literally just three or four pages away. Look what happens here. Christ is at this feast with Matthew and his tax collector friends and publicans and sinners. And in that setting, something takes place. Chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 14. Then the disciples of John, John the Baptist's followers, who are not yet followers of Christ, 
Then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, now catch what they say. Hey, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And literally the idea is, we fast often. We fast much. Here's our problem. Why do we fast, but your disciples do not fast? We've been watching. Your guys don't fast. Y'all aren't fasting. Why is that? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You don't mourn and have a sad time as you're getting ready to have the wedding. Christ says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Obviously he's saying, I'm the bridegroom, I'm with my disciples. This is not the time for sadness and mourning and fasting. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Is that, that is not a command you must fast. He just simply says, my people will fast when I'm gone. They will. So the question is, do we? So here's, I was kind of put myself in your shoes this week. And I was thinking this thought. All right, hold on. Time out, Jeff. Time out. If we're not commanded to fast, and I'm addicted to food, and me too. We're, you're like, not only do I like it, the years of my life have proven I, I need this stuff. If I'm not commanded to fast, then why in the world would I fast? Guys, what I don't have this morning is a passage of Scripture that commands and other passages that regulate those fasts. I don't have that. What we do have are instances and circumstances and examples that we can look at and glean some Bible purposes of fasting. And so here's what I want to make a main point this morning. What is the purpose of fasting? We need to be applying a purpose, a biblical fast. Write it down. All biblical fasting. We could say it this way. Biblical fasting is always for spiritual purposes. It is never this. Well, I'm fasting. Great. What are you fasting for? Well, just the Bible talks about fasting. Right. What are you, what's your purpose in it? I don't know. Just the Bible says to fast. Don't fast for fasting's sake. That's a wrong, that's a wrong motive. You say, then what are some purposes of fasting? Guys, some would offer you two or three reasons. Some would say there's 10 or 12 reasons. What I want to do is take the next few minutes and let's boil down, because I'm proposing, listen, you need to have a purpose if you're going to fast. What, is, what are Bible purposes? I don't want to hit 10 or 12. I want to boil down what I think are maybe the six key purposes that should cause us to enter into a season of fasting. Number one, to accompany personal and national confession of sin if you write that you're going to want to turn in your bible would you go with me daniel chapter 9 i'm literally this is not an exhaustive study these six things are not the only six reasons there is no way you guys understand fasting is spoken about some 75 76 times more than baptism in the bible fasting is that important all we're going to be able to do is literally just pull some highlights go to daniel chapter 9 you need to flip in your bible over there however you have a bible in front of you Look at chapter 9, verse number 1. So here's an example. Uh, here's the scene. Uh, 
Judah, the southern tribes of Judah, so the northern tribes of Israel, they've already been taken captive and gone into exile by the Assyrians. But the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, and eventually the Babylonians conquered the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they carried them away, exile, over to their lands, and Daniel was in that exile. And here he is, years and years later, some 70 years after the event, and now Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Daniel's going to say that he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and in reading that, he's going to realize a timetable has been set. So watch what happens. Daniel in the land of Persia, and so now not only did the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians, but the Persians have now conquered the Babylonians, and they're in charge, and Daniel is under their reign serving in their government. Verse 1, watch what the Bible says. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Jerusalem just got ransacked, destroyed, its walls destroyed, its temple destroyed. And how long is that going to happen? God was so angry with the Jews that they had sinned. He kept warning and warning and warning. They didn't listen. Finally, he let a more wicked nation than them conquer his people, destroy the land. How long is this going to last back in the homeland? Daniel writes, after reading this in Jeremiah, it's been 70 years. It's supposed to be 70 years. Here it is. Then I turned my face to the Lord seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting. Catch this again. He says, I read this. I realize the time. I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that that they have committed against you. Did you catch what he did? He reads this. He's, it's time we especially need to acknowledge our sin. It is time for God to turn from his wrath against us and to restore us and allow us to go back to the homeland. Flip quickly back to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now they're actually back in Israel. They have rebuilt the wall. And in rebuilding the wall, they they got the Old Testament out. And they spent six hours a day literally hearing the reading of the law. They hadn't heard it in a long time. And how did God's people respond? Now months, if not maybe a year or so later, verse chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads. So they would throw up literally dust in the air. Let it land on their head. They would have a look of just sorrow and repentance. 
And the Bible says the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Like you get, now, I know you've mingled. You guys need to stay over there. And the Israelites stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Hey, guys, listen. You say, what would be a biblical use of fasting? Sometimes we just need to confess national and personal sin and let it accompany, be accompanied by fasting. Now, here's the key. I'm going to qualify this one. Let me qualify it. Don't ever associate our fasting as we're confessing our sin and receiving forgiveness from God. Please don't ever associate and assume God is forgiving our sin because of our fasting. His forgiveness is not based on our fasting. His forgiveness is always based on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's all it's ever based on. But this is something that we're using to show God, this is how sorrowful, this is how repentant we truly are. We are acknowledging our sin. We are ready to turn from our sin. And we're, we're coupling it with fasting as well. Very quickly, and a second reason is to help express extreme sorrow. Literally, the Jews would have mourners and wailers and weepers at a time of sorrow. Uh, you're in your Old Testament perhaps already. If you want to turn... I'm going to hit it quickly, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Just a quick example of sorrow uh, being expressed through fasting. Y'all remember the scene. David has committed a sin with Bathsheba, who's another man's wife. She ends up expecting a child. As a result, David has him murdered. The prophet Nathan comes, tells King David what he has done, that he's committed great sin, and it's revealed to him. Not on the screen. I'm going to read verse 14 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. Samuel says, Nevertheless, because of this your deed, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So this child that, that Bathsheba is getting ready to have, that you're and her child, the child is going to die. Then Nathan went to his house. Watch what happens. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. I'm not going to keep reading. He does this for seven days, seven nights. He's fasting and eventually the child dies. But it is associating extreme sorrow is associated and expressed through fasting. Notice a third reason for this. I want you to go to the New Testament a third reason that we, may, that we find in the Bible for fasting is this. Why would I fast? To seek God's will concerning important decisions. God, I need your will concerning some very important decisions. Acts chapter 13. We don't fa find fasting in the New Testament nearly as much as we do in the Old, but we do find it here. Acts chapter 13 verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manaean, there's a fourth one, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Later on he'll, he will start going by his Roman name of Paul. So there's these five prophets and teachers in this church. While they were worshiping, I can't tell you guys who the they are. I don't know if the they is these five men or if it's the church at Antioch. Either way, notice, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me, the Holy Spirit is God, says set apart for me, the Holy Spirit for me, God, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So one thing I learned here is that while they're worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit especially speaks and speaks in great detail. Not on the screen, but verse 3 says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, those two men, and sent them off. And so they go off to what we call the first missionary journey. Flip over to chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. At the end of the first missionary journey, they've started a lot of churches, and they're going kind of quickly. Maybe you've read that before and say, Jeff, I really don't understand how in the world they could start that, that many churches in these towns so quickly. Remember, they're going to cities that had Jewish synagogues. They already had the Old Testament. They just needed to know that Jesus is the Messiah and that he had come and that he died for the sins of the world. And so they could start these churches more quickly than, say, going to a part of the world that's never heard of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Old Testament, Abraham, Jesus. It would take longer. Watch verse 23. So they finish their missionary journey, and now they start backtracking to go to the cities. So they're retracing their steps, hitting the same cities where these churches are now a few weeks, a few months old. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders, talking about this on Wednesday nights, elders for them in every church, not an elder in each church, but when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know what that tells me? When it's time to make a huge decision, that's a great time to fast and make sure that we are in the will of the Lord. Literally, you're asking God, God, I am so serious. I want to know your clear will on this. I don't want to miss it that I'm accompanying my prayers with fasting. Um, don't say this to in any way go against Matthew 6.1. I think I can say it safely now. So this coming Tuesday will mark 30 years ago that Deanna and I got engaged. Well, I remember that Thanksgiving in 1989. That was December 31st, 1989, basically January 1, 1990. But I remember it was preceded in November of that year by several days of fasting because I wanted to know the will of the Lord. So I think this is a great use when we really need clarity. God, what is your will on a big decision that is coming up? That's a great time to fast. Everybody with? That's a time to fast. When would you fast? To accompany confession, to express extreme sorrow, to seek direction and guidance from the Lord in a big decision. Here's another one. To seek special assistance from God. I'm going, if you would, if you want to join me, Esther chapter 4, the book of Esther chapter 4. We're getting all of our passages are done here under this first point. Uh, and then we'll be camped out in Matthew 6 for all of the second point. All of our passages are very front-loaded in the message. Are you in Esther chapter 4? So here's the scene. Again, same thing. The Jews are in exile. The Persians have conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians are eventually going to let the Jews go back to their homeland. But there's a dire situation. There's a God-hating, Jew-hating man named Haman. And he has tricked the king of the land of the Persians to pass a law that on a specific day all the Jews throughout all the realms would be killed on one certain day. Well, the problem is the clock is ticking and that day is approaching and two key players in this book of Esther is this girl Esther the queen who won a beauty contest and ends up becoming the wife of Ahasuerus or of Xerxes the Persian king 
And then her relative, apparently an uncle, a cousin, but in essence he adopts her as a child and raises her. They're very closely related. She's won this beauty contest. She's the queen of the king, and she's living in the palace, but they keep passing messages because Mordecai knows the day's coming when all the Jews are going to be wiped out. And he's prodding his like again, adopted daughter who's in the palace, you need to use your position to express and God may use that to save the Jewish nation. Here's the problem. She knows there's a Persian law that you don't just go into the Persian king's presence. If you go in his presence, it breaks the law and the only reason they would not kill you on the spot is if he extends the golden scepter as a recognition that I'll, I'll make an exception. I accept you today. Well, here's the problem. She hasn't been invited in to see the king in 30 days. Something's going on. She feels like banished and here's Mordecai saying, you need to use your position to help us out. Look at verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So she's like, listen, this is dangerous. I'm not invited in there. I'm going to get killed. Verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You're going to be killed just like us. And then he says, for if you keep silent at this time, notice his faith. Relief and deliverance will rise for the, Jews, for the Jews from another place. God's going to save us. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, maybe God made you look the way you look and let you win that just for such a time as this so that you would have access into the palace and the king's presence. You need to do this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Here's her solution. Go. Why would we ever fast? Here it is. Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. This is where they live, one of the four capital cities. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast or hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink. Uh-oh, this is a whole other level. It's not just not eating and drinking water. This is do not eat or drink for three days. Okay, well, we'll eat and drink at night. No, night or day. Total cutoff three days. I need you all to do that for me. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. After these three days, then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And no classic line. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so you say, well, did she go in to see? Yeah. And what happened? Well, you need to read Esther. All right. Number five. What's the fifth reason? Here's a big one. To heighten our prayer life and our pursuit of God. Why would I fast? Jeff, I mean, I'm addicted to food. Why would I fast? To heighten our prayer life. Don't raise your hand, but I just wonder, is anybody here this morning, you're like, Jeff, I've been really trying to pray, and I'm trying to be faithful, but it is really just kind of flatlined. It's kind of plateaued. It's gotten kind of stale and stagnant. Maybe you want to couple fasting with your prayers. I'm back in Matthew 6, and I'm kind of noticing here, listen to me, it is not an accident that Jesus talks about giving and then prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting almost always go together. I'm going to borrow three or four quotes today from a man named Donald Whitney. Whitney writes the following. I need you to catch this. Everybody really tune in here. 
We're talking about purposes for fasting. Whitney writes, if we ask for something outside God's will, so picture it. Here we are. We're praying to God, and whether we know it or not, we're actually asking for something outside of God's will. Whitney says, fasting does not cause him to reconsider. So here's God. Here's Jeff. So from God's perspective, there you are. We're praying. That's actually outside of my will. I'm not going to do that. But I'm fasting. Oh, wait a minute. Hold it. They're fasting. In that case, I'm going to do what you've asked for, even though it's against my... No, Whitney's correct. He says, if we ask for something outside of God's will, fasting does not cause him to reconsider. Here it comes. Fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. That is key. Fasting doesn't change how God hears. Fasting changes how Jeff and how you will pray. Guarantee, Jeff, I'm still not getting it. What do you mean? What's this heighten our prayers? Fasting will turbocharge your prayers. Fasting is a God-approved, God-ordained way to stoke the fire and intensify our prayer. You get really good and hungry, and it's time to pray, and you start feeling desperate, you'll get really focused and really locked in, and you'll start having fervent prayers, hopefully of a righteous person that avails and accomplishes much. This is a God-appointed, God-approved. Hey, uh, some people, I'm going to cut myself and show God how sick. No, that's not God-approved. I'm going to take a strap, and I'm just going to beat my, or I'm going to just keep slapping my, no, not God approved. That is not God approved. Fasting is the God approved way to intensify your prayers. And then a sixth one I want to offer to you. You're in the New Testament. Hold your spot in Matthew. Go one more passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's write this down. Why would I fast? Number six, to keep our bodily appetites in subjection to God. I didn't have room to put all of that wording. We just put to keep our appetites in subjection. So you say, Jeff, is this the point? Is this like a good diet? So we fast to keep our bodily appetites in subjection. Biblical fasting is not about dieting to lose weight, okay? That's a wrong motivation. That might be a good byproduct, by the way, but that is wrong motivation. That's not why we fast, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So why would we fast? You're not going to see the word fasting in this text. I'll go ahead and confess that to you, but I do, I, I'm not harming the text. Can I very quickly give you the context here before we read it? Ready? Paul's in the city of Corinth. Actually, he started a church in the city of Corinth. He's not there, but he's writing a letter back to Christians there. I've actually got to stand in this city. And this was one of the main things that struck me. Struck me. The context here is food offered to idols. So the idea would be there's right over here is this temple. I have video of it, a, like a little portion reconstruction. Over here is a temple to Apollos. And they would offer animal sacrifices, but not all of it would be used. And so what's left over, like 100 yards to here, and here's some shops. And then there's this road that runs up through here and then on the other side. So really about 200 yards away, down a little hill, over there is where they sell the leftover meat that's been offered to idols. And so Corinthians, who are Christians, are wanting to know, is it right or wrong to eat meat that has been offered to false gods, idols? 
Is this right? Some Christians say there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Those are false gods. They don't even really exist. It's just meat. Others are like, they feel terrible. And if I eat that, I'm like eating something that's been offered to a God. And I'm kind of worshiping that God and it's just wrong. And so what's the answer? Is it okay or not? Paul tips his hand that there is nothing wrong with eating meat that's been offered to idols as long as in your heart you know there is nothing wrong with it. But here's the key. Paul is going to say sometimes you give up your rights. I can eat this meat offered to idols. True. But should you? Paul's attitude is it depends on who he's with. So Paul, do you eat meat offered to idols? His attitude, again, right before this is when I'm with Jews, I eat in such a way that doesn't offend Jews. And when I'm with Jews who are Christians, I eat in a way that, does, that doesn't offend them. And when I'm with Gentile people who have strong faith and realize those are not real gods, then I'll eat what they eat. And when I'm with Gentiles who've been saved and their conscience is bruised if they were to eat that meat, then I don't eat that meat. You say, well, Paul's a hypocrite. He's a compromiser. No, he's not. He has a goal in mind. In fact, he uses another thing. He says, hey, Corinthians, have you ever noticed I never took one dime from you when I was ministering there? Here's a reason. I had the right to be paid, but I went for something bigger. I laid aside my rights. Sometimes you can do something, but you will intentionally sacrifice it, put it aside for a time for a greater purpose. Verse 24. Grace, if you hear this, here's a reason to fast. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Have you ever noticed that? might be a photo finish, but they get it down. That one won. So run that you may obtain. Run to win. Here's a physical illustration. Every athlete, like the Olympics, the Ithsamian games of their day, the Corinthian games, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now here it comes. They, athletes, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. What do we do? Exercise self-control for an imperishable crown is the idea. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly on your blocks, on your mark, set, go. Everybody's doing this and Paul's like, How's it going? Sure. Hey. Hey, buddy. Hey. No. Paul's like, man, I'm all business. Verse 26. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. You know what Paul's saying? I'm not a Hollywood stunt actor. Oh, good one. Oh, you got me. We're not playing games. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, what is your point? If not getting paid helps someone really believe the gospel, then I'll not get paid. If not eating meat helps someone listen to my message and I'm not offensive to them, then I'll give up the meat. I don't need to eat meat ever again. If this person over here eats the meat and offers it to me and that's an avenue for me to have a connection with them and share the gospel, then I'm going to eat the meat offered to them. His point is, I want to win this thing. I want to win people to Christ. I'll do whatever it takes. So, Jeff, what's the point? Paul made a habit of giving up his rights. I want to borrow from William Barclay on this point. He really helps us here if you'll pay attention. Really helps us. Barclay writes, got to listen here. It is easy to come to a stage 
when we deny ourselves nothing which it is in our power to have or to pay for. This is a man who lived in Great Britain years ago. He's not even living in America. This fits more in America than it did when, what, what he wrote then. Read it again. He says, it is easy to come to a stage when we deny ourselves nothing, which it is in our power to have or to pay for. Jeff, what's the point? I want chicken strips. What do you do when you want chicken strips? You just go to the drive-thru. I'm just swinging over. Oh, I'm right there. They might have them. I want a fish sandwich. Go right over here. They've got one over here. You can get one of the whole fries and drink with it. Six bucks. He said, like, I want a roast beef sandwich. Right before you get to that one, there's the other one. Drive through. Just go. I want a chicken sandwich. Okay. I'm telling you, whatever you, I want a steak and cheese. Right around the corner, they have good ones. Like right at the end of Charlie Drive, just get out on 28 by a little dive on the left right there. Good steak and cheese. Really good. Um, I want clothes. Okay, we're within five miles, Belk, Dillard, Coles. That's how we live. I want it. I'll just swing over and get it. No, I ain't got time for that. I'm going to pull up Amazon. I want it. Click, click. They'll have it at my house in two days. I want it. I give myself what I want. And depending where we're at, you may even get to a point in life like, this thing is two years old. I ain't doing this anymore. I think, you know what, I think I'm going to the dealership tomorrow. I'm going to get another one. I want it. I'm going to do it. I want to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I want to watch it in person. No problem. Go on the website. Click, click, click. Get a ticket. I want it. I just do it. Barclay says, it is easy to come to a stage when we deny ourselves nothing which is in our power to have or to pay for. Here's his advice. It would do most people a great deal of good to cease from some time, for some time each week, to make their wishes and their desires their master. Fancy way of saying, it would do us some good to every week have a built-in time where we don't just give ourselves everything that we want or desire. And he goes further and says, and to exercise a stringent and an antiseptic self-discipline. Paul says, I keep under my body, I discipline my body. I'm not going to let my desires rule me. And this is where you can make modern applications. Maybe you're here this morning and say, I'll tell you one thing. I can't go a day without this. Checking that and clicking on that and see what's going on. If you think you can't go a day without that, you need to fast a day without that. If you think, I couldn't go a week without my hobby, you need to go a week without your hobby. If you think, I, that food right there, I can't go three days without that food, or I can't do without that drink. I have to start my day with that drink. And I have to have one of those at lunch. Or i got to end my day every day with one of those. You need to cut that out of your life for a little while. Make sure that you're not being dictated to by the desires of the body. Cut it out for a while. It might even be a short-term specialized style of fasting. But what if on a regular basis... We put in our life like, you know what, body, you're not going to tell soul and spirit and Holy Spirit in me what to do. We're going to make on a regular basis, set aside time, we're going to keep you in check. You're not in charge here, buddy. I know you want that. Yes, you like food. You're not getting it today or tomorrow or whatever the Lord lays on your heart. Write this down. Second quote from Whitney, he writes, without a purpose... 
Fasting can be a miserable, self-centered experience about willpower and endurance. you got to have a purpose. I gave you six. Here they are again. Why in the world would I fast? To accompany a season of confession, to express extreme sorrow, to really seek God's guidance on a decision that is a huge decision, to really seek special assistance from the Lord like Esther did. God, I need protection. I need your power to be moved. To heighten my prayers that have gone stale and to keep the appetites of the body in check and in subjection to the Holy Spirit and to my spirit so that it doesn't rule me. Again, Whitney writes, without a purpose, fasting can be a miserable, self-centered experience about willpower and endurance. And this is, should help you. Very practical. Very practical. Whitney also writes, as you are fasting and your head aches or your stomach growls and you think, I'm hungry. You're not focusing on it all day. He says, you think, I'm hungry. He says, your next thought is likely to be something like this. Oh, right. I'm hungry because I'm fasting today. Whitney says, if that happens, man, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah, I'm fasting today. Your next thought should be, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm fasting today. And the reason I'm fasting is for this purpose. And then name the purpose. Can you name the purpose? If you can't remember the purpose, then you're just doing without food for the sake of doing without food. You say, well, what would be a purpose? Man, I'm hungry. Oh, that's right, I'm fasting. Oh, I'm fasting because I'm especially praying for one of my kids. Or I'm praying for my church. Or I'm praying for God encounters. That's right, I'm fasting because I'm praying especially for souls to be saved or a soul to be Hang with me. I'm praying for my country. We're in a mess. I'm praying for victory over a certain sin. Or I'm praying. I remember. Now I remember. I'm hungry because I'm fasting. And I'm fasting because I'm seeking God to stir up my spiritual gift and empower the use of my spiritual gift. You can go on and on and on. What's the reason that you're fasting? You should have that before you just launch into it. Whitney finishes this quote by saying, Without a clear biblical purpose, fasting becomes an end in itself. That's bad. He says, then it just becomes an end in itself. He writes, every hunger pain only makes you calculate the time remaining until you can eat. How long have we got? How long have we got? Oh, yeah. He says, such thinking, if you disconnect it from a purpose, disconnects the experience in your mind and heart from the gospel, and then it descends into this deception that perhaps your suffering will earn God's favor. Don't fall into that trap. I know that we love really practical things, and so I want to offer you something that I read this week that David Platt offered in a recent thing that he taught, I think back in April or May. April, I believe it was. So he takes the word fast. Ready? You say, I want something I can remember, Jeff. I'm not big on alliteration. I know a lot of preachers preach alliterated, alliterated sermons to help their people remember them. The problem is when everything is alliterated, then you can't remember them all. I don't alliterate sermons, but here we have an acronym, and I think it's a helpful one. Write it down quickly. What is fasting about? Number one, focus on God. That's where it starts. Focus on God. You say, I'm thinking about fasting. I haven't listened to this. You say, this is in there in the Bible more than baptism. I really need to consider this. Absolutely. Focus on God. Get your purpose. What is the purpose that you're going to do this? Number two, this is the fasting one. Abstain from food. 
Abstain from food. Number three, what is this S? It's a key thing. He writes, substitute the time with, I'm going to add the word that I didn't put in your handout. You may want to write it above. Substitute the time with extra prayer and study. Focus on God. Realize what's going to be the purpose in this. I'm not just going to do it aimlessly and make it an end in itself. What's the purpose? How can I better focus on God? He's going to be the center of this. Now I'm going to abstain from food. And now when I feel myself getting hungry, Jeff, what does this mean, substitute the time? The time that you would normally be eating or snacking, then replace that with extra prayer and study on the thing that you are fasting for. You say, well, then what's this tea? This is a great one. He says in fasting, taste and see that God is good. Taste and see. My mind thinks of it this way. If I'm fasting properly, then I need to realize this. God, I just shoot straight. I love me some food. I want some food. I'm feeling hungry. Food is a real gift. Food is so delightful. God, food is such a source of joy. Yes, it's a source of strength, but it's a source of joy in our lives. But you are a greater source of strength. You are a greater source of joy. Lord, I am, I am trying to bring myself to the point where I hunger more for you than I ever hunger for food. And this is going to help me do that. God, I'm not looking at this as a bitter thing. I want to taste and see that you are good in this. That's an awesome little acronym. Focus on God. Abstain from food. Substitute the time with extra prayer and study. And then taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's finish in chapter 6 of Matthew. Here we go. Point number 2 is Jesus' teaching on prayer. I'm sorry, Jesus' teaching on fasting. Very simple way of looking at this. We've looked at the same thing under two points previously in this chapter. It's the way Jesus does it. So if you would look at verse 16, here's what we find. So Jesus' teaching on prayer, very practical. We see the wrong way to fast. Let's look at the wrong way. This is the wrong way to fast. Here we go. Everybody there? Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Have you ever seen the little child? You ever seen them? They contort their face. Some do it this way. Others do it this way. The opposite. Some are sucking the bottom lip in and some are pooching the bottom lip out. You ever seen that? You want to know the truth? Somebody in here, that was you when you was a kid. You did that. You were that kid. I, I know in a, in a group this size, somebody was that person. Some of you are like, yeah, that's my kid. Y'all know why kids do that, right? Because it manipulates weak parents. <laughs> and it works. And if you're letting it work, but look at her. She's so cute. <laughs> And you give in, you are so weak. Stop it. You're only fueling it. That's another sermon. Don't do that. Let me read between the lines. You've got to really read between the lines to see it. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrite. Here's what Jesus is saying. Stop being a baby. Stop being a baby. When you fast, don't do three things. Don't outright say, well, you know I'm fasting. Oh. Don't do that. Or... Ah, man, I'm just so hungry today. What are you hungry for? Oh, well, since you asked. I haven't, I just hadn't eaten all day. Oh, I haven't eaten. Oh, well, since you asked, I'm fasting. Oh, don't do that. Or, here's this one, do something in your physical appearance 
to show and let it leak out that you're fasting. Don't do that. What's Jesus saying? If you're writing it down, don't intentionally look and sound hungry. Don't look hungry. Don't sound hungry. I thought about this. I want to offer to you two reasons why I think people try to look and sound hungry, like a little child doing their pooch lip. Probably not the greatest reason, not the most dominant, but definitely with some. Not being mean, guys. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Some people just want pity from other people. They just want pity. Here's their thought. Look how hard my life is. I've got such a hard life. I'm not being mean, but have you ever met a person? Maybe I'm being mean. Have you ever met a person, their whole persona, their whole identity is how much more difficult their life is than other people? Have you ever met anybody like that? You say, Jeff, how do you know? I mean, literally, literally, you, if you talk to them one minute, one minute, they're going to start telling you how hard and difficult their life is. I know some folks like that. Don't be that person. I saw someone smiling. Like, like, and they're apparently communicating that to someone else beside them who has the same person in mind. We do that. Look how hard my life is. Oh, you poor thing. Second reason, probably much more often than the first one, why do people make their fasting known? Some people just want to feel superior to others. Some want pity from others, and some want to feel superior. There was this Pharisee, Jesus says, who's praying to himself. He's not really praying to God. He's in the temple, and he prays something like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, especially like that publican tax-collecting sinner over there. God, now, as you know, I tithe of all of my income and all my possessions, and I fast twice a week. Jeff, that guy probably doesn't really fast twice a week. Oh, I'll guarantee he does. He thinks he's talking to God. He's not going to lie. He probably fasts on Monday and Thursday and lets everybody know about it, and he feels real superior about it. The first person says, oh, look how hard my life is. This person says, look how devoted, how disciplined my life is. I'm going to say something. Somebody may say, Jeff, you are undermining your whole sermon today. You shouldn't have said it. Pride is sin. Listen, I'm sure this morning there are some folks who've never fasted and you're considering it now. Like, I've never heard this, never heard this taught on. I've never thought about it. Others are like, actually, it's part of my life or you've done it in the past. I want you to listen to me. I don't say this. I'm not going to take it back. If fasting only fuels more pride in you, then don't fast. Don't, it's not commanded. If when you fast, it makes you think how much more spiritual you are than other people. I discovered it three months ago, and since I've been fasting, I am really so much more than what were you before. I found it out a year ago. I started doing it five years ago. I've been doing it for 15 years. You think you're spiritual because you fast. Stop fasting. Have verse 16 in mind. I'm going to make a few more comments and we'll go fast. I know I've got to talk quickly. I want you to listen. I've, I've watched me and I've watched people. I kind of study our human nature. Subconsciously, I pick it up and you do as well. Listen, there's something in us that whenever, whenever we deprive ourselves of something, we want people to know it. Know it. If we're doing without, we want people to know about it. Guys, here's what we can't do. I want you to listen. Here's what we can't do this. We can't have on one side over here where we're fasting as if 
we are really sorrowful for our sin and we're really hungry for God. God, I'm so empty. I need you. You are the key thing. I am nothing. Or this poor in spirit, God, I am so sinful. I am so wicked. I'm so sorry for my sin. You can't truly be doing that sincerely. And on the other side, hope somebody notices that you're doing this fasting so they'll think how, and notice how spiritual you are. Did that click? You can't have both. These do not go together. Oh, God, this is how sorry I am for my sin. I am nothing. I'm really hungry for you. I need you. Boy, I hope they notice and look how spiritual. Are you poor in spirit or are you spiritual? You can't have both. We want both. And so what Christ is teaching us here in verse 16, again, not being mean. If you fish for applause by releasing out what you're doing, then I hope you enjoy it. What is it? It may be a pat on the back or a look of pity or a look of being impressed with you. I hope you enjoy that. Why? Because you chose that over God's reward. Furthermore, not only did you choose their approval and the look on their face of being impressed with you, not only did you choose it over God's reward. Listen, let's just get practical. You chose it over food. I hope you like their look on their face better than food because you gave up food to get it unless you're lying. Is it really worth it? Verse 16, very quickly. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. What are hypocrites? Hypocrites are actors on a stage who are pretending. They were all men back in this time in the Greek culture. They would have these things they would put up on the, in front of their face. They'd dress up or they'd put on makeup. And some would use a high-pitched voice and they'd be the women. And some would be the guys. And they're down on the stage in the amphitheater. What are they doing? They're just pretending. Guys, listen to me. Here's where we Christians can fall into a trap. We can sit in here and say, hey, over there is the hypocrite. Or back there, or up there, or out there. The hypocrites are out there. Here's what we need to be saying. Wait a minute. Is there a chance the hypocrite is in my seat? Is there a chance the hypocrite's wearing the, black, the brown plaid sport coat and the blue pants today? Because too often he's been a hypocrite. I want to tell you something. Hypocrites are pretenders. Write this down. Christians are hypocrites who are just pretending. That's not the whole sentence. That'd be mean. Hypocrites, Christians are hypocrites who are just pretending. No, but Christians are hypocrites who are just pretending when they appear to love people by giving. And they appear to love God, appear to love God by praying. And they appear to seek God by fasting. But in reality, they really love themselves. So much that they're actually using these good things like giving and praying and fasting to garner and to attract praise from other people. That's where, that's how we can take evil right out of a good situation. We're pretending, oh, look how much they love people. They're giving. Look how much they love God. All the praying they say they do. Look how much they seek God because of their fasting. When really when we're leaking it out, we love ourselves and we're using these good things to draw attention and to attract the praise of others. And lastly, is the right way to fast, verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Why? That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. So guys, this last thing I'm going to have you write. I know it's the last one. I'm going to have just a little bit more after you write it. 
So let's notice the right way to fast. I'm going to give you a moment. I know some of you are finishing writing the previous note. Taste this. I'm going to put it in two parts. God is not glorified when Christians brag about their spiritual disciplines. God's just not glorified when Christians brag about their spiritual disciplines. Hey, look. Look how much I give. Look how much I pray. Let me let you know that I'm fat. God is not glorified. But, guys, there's a catch. There's more to this sentence. God is not glorified when Christians brag about their spiritual disciplines and then project holy misery because of those spiritual disciplines. Look how much, well, you know, i got to give. You know what that says to people? It is so hard to serve God. It's just so hard. i got to give. You know, i got to pray. i got to go down to the church, and i got to fast. You know what that tells other people? Man, I'm glad I'm not serving your God. He sounds rough. Don't do that. What does Jesus say? Jesus is saying actually take practical steps so that people will not know that you're praying. Verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Can I interpret that? Again, reading a little between the lines. I'm going to interpret that. You say, I've been doing this for years, or I'm thinking about literally doing this as a result of today's passage. I, I may, even though it's not a command, I may think about putting this in my life. If so, I think that would be awesome. I think it would be great. Have a Bible purpose. Can I please encourage you? Three things. Clean up. Clean up. Second thing, when you know you're going to be around people and you're hungry, depending on how long you've been fasting, can I encourage you? Pick your energy up. If you know you're going to be around people, pick your energy up a little bit. Like, but I'm pretending at that point. No, just don't give it away that you're fasting. Pick your energy up. Third one, very practical. Use a breath mint. Especially if you go two or three days of fasting. You're like, why the breath mint? Go two or three days and you'll find out why. Clean up. Pick your energy up. Don't let people know what you're doing. Don't talk about it. Don't hint at it. And sure, don't look gloomy because of it. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Jesus says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen carefully. Our Jesus doesn't say when the Father will reward. It doesn't say how he will reward. It just says your Father in heaven will reward. Listen, let that sink in, guys. It's huge. We don't know if it's going to be a direct blessing. We don't know if it's going to be an indirect. I talked about this earlier. So we don't know if it's going to happen in this life or if it's going to happen in eternity. Is it going to be physical blessing? Is it going to be a spiritual reward? Is it going to be emotional, relational, financial? Again, is it going to be direct or is it going to be some things that God doesn't let happen to us because of it? Is it again, is it this life or the next life? I can't tell you. Can't tell you when. Can't tell you how. All I know is it's going to happen. One more quote from Donald Whitney. He says, as certain as any promise in Scripture is the promise that God will bless you and reward you when you fast according to his word. That is huge. Why wouldn't we do that? You say, well, now, wait a minute. You just gave a reason for fasting that is not in the other six. I want in on this reward. Okay, but connect a purpose with it. God's reward is not a debt that he owes. It's an offer. God is literally saying, if you'll do this for a Bible reason, a spiritual purpose that fits the Scripture, I'm not commanding you, but I noticed this. I haven't read it, so I don't, I'm going to say 100%. It seems like to me, other than the high day of atonement, all the fasts in the scriptures are initiated by people. And God accepts them. That's a good reason. They're put in a good light. It's not commanded by him. We initiate these things. So wait a minute. Let me get this. 
I want in on this blessing. Well, then fast, but attach it to a spiritual purpose. So I close with this. So Jesus is saying, don't lose your reward. You lose your reward when you let it out and you desire others to know that you've been fasting. One paragraph, and I'll be done, and we'll close our eyes, and I'll ask you a few brief questions, and we'll pray and go home. Listen. The Bible does not command fasting, and it does not regulate the length of fasting. So I can't do that for you. You say, what do we have to go by? Did you know that the Bible describes a range of fasting that lasts anywhere from a night? You know what that tells me? A night of fasting, that's one meal, an evening meal. We typically eat two in the day, one at night. There's a fat, there are fasts in Scripture that it was the nighttime meal. There are fasts that are described as one day. Some were three days. Some were seven days. Some even were 21. And a couple of people, Jesus is one, Moses is one, who fasted for up to 40 days and nights. Those were supernatural ability. Uh, you're not going to be able to do that on your own. There were spiritual purposes. Christ was getting ready to go into his ministry. And he was going to be strongly tempted by sin, but he did not give in to sin. Moses is up on Mount Horeb receiving the law. These are unique circumstances. Daniel, 21 days again. David, seven days over his child. Over his child. There are different time periods, so I can't tell you what the time period would be. One more from Whitney. He writes, strictly speaking, abstinence from one meal for spiritual purposes constitutes... A fast. Let me qualify that. You say, well, I never eat breakfast anyway. I'll just kind of call that. No, you don't feel hungry at breakfast. Don't, don't call that one. That's not a fast. You say, well, I eat a big old lunch. Give up that lunch. Say, I, I feel hungry. All right, you've got to feel the hunger before you really call it a fast. Whitney says, strictly speaking, abstinence from one meal for spiritual purposes constitutes a fast. So the length of your fast is up to you. And the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I realize as I say that, someone here don't like it. And, 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 come on, Jeff. One meal. They need, at least need to do a day because all my life I've been. Uh, that's your rule. There we go again. We get legalistic, right? Everybody needs to do how I do. Yeah, well, remember the guy that does two days says your one day is not a real fast. So don't do that. It could be a meal. It could be a day. It could be two. I would encourage you. I get practical? Start small. I'm going to do a seven-day like David. Careful. Practical. If you're diabetic, if you're an expectant mother, if you're on a lot of medication, you need to check with your doctor before you just launch out doing something. Make sure that gets on the recording. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> but really... Start smaller. You can always grow and get some wisdom and under their supervision. But maybe do it. I think it would be great if our church becomes a praying, fasting church. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? I'm going to pray. We'll be dismissed. Never preached on this in my life. Uh, we'll see if it ever comes up again. Some of you, like I've never heard, Preaching on fasting before. I mean, why would we go out of our way to do it? It's probably going to be expositional. So I do need to finish with this thought. How has God spoken to you? Just before we pray, answer this. 
bring the Lord into focus. God, how have you spoken to me this morning? Do you have a biblical purpose for fasting? Do you have one? Maybe you're here this morning and say, God, my prayer life is really stagnant. I think it needs turbocharged. I need some new intensity. And that very well may be the reason, God, that, that I need to do this. I need to feel some hunger and have a God-approved way of intensifying and heightening and turbocharging my prayers. Well, then do it. Maybe someone here today, I'll guarantee someone is here today, and you are in the middle of a big, very important decision that's coming up. You want God's will. Well, accompany that with fasting. Maybe someone here this morning, you like, well, I already know God's will in a matter. I just need God's power. God, I need God to do something. I need, like, real assistance. Maybe it's protection or provision. I just need God to really do something. Well, then beg and plead and couple some fasting with it to intensify your prayers. Hey, maybe someone this morning is saying, you know what? The Lord laid on my heart. Not only myself, but maybe my family. But I know our nation's in a mess. And we need some Christians to rise up. And Graceview needs to be part of this movement. And we need to start fasting and confessing our national and personal sins. Not that God's forgiveness is based on our fasting. But, Lord, we're intense on this. We repent. And, God, we're asking you to move the church and your people to make a difference. And then... Maybe somebody this morning, this is you. This is just the way it is. You've hit a point in life where you can have anything you want. God's blessed you. And you're thankful for those blessings. But here's the truth. Spiritually, you're flabby because of it. You're spiritually flabby because whenever you want something, you just give it to yourself. And your appetites and desires just dictate over you. And maybe you say, you know what? My body needs to be put back in its proper place, and no long-term damage will be done, but I, on a regular basis, need to let my spirit and the Holy Spirit remind my body who the boss is, and it is God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've been making it out as though I'm the God, and I've been serving me in every way possible. I am the center of my world. I need to, I need to just remind it, maybe every week, you're not number one. So, Father, Lord, I'm thinking the other day, I had no idea what to say on this message, and you taught me a lot, a lot. Lord, I pray that as you know what we will do with this, Lord, that, that you would put this in a greater way into my life, and that eternity would find that I helped set a tone in this, but, Lord, may we all, as you lead, as you guide, as you prompt. Lord, even as we want to, when we find a Bible purpose, spiritual purpose, that we would attach fasting to that and make our prayers urgent and seek your will and your guidance, your power, your desire for our lives, your rulership over us and our will. So, Lord, I pray that you would just have your way in this message, though unusual as it is, we commit it to you with this people. Father, would you bless us this week with your presence more than anything and your power on our ministry as we go forth in your name. For Jesus' sake and in the power of his name, we ask these things. Amen.